This City Wire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. Scottish Mortgage is considered the flagship trust of Edinburgh-based investment managers Bailey Gifford and is the UK's largest investment trust. As with any investment, please note capital is at risk. To find out more, please visit scottishmortgageit.com. Hi, I'm Selim Bujak and today I have with me Rainer and the Head of Private Equity at Schroders. Hi Rainer. What I want to discuss with you first is when the announcement came of the creation of Schroder's Capital, bringing all these alternatives of private markets arms under one umbrella, there was a lot of talk about kind of this trend of democratization. So can, can you tell me a bit about what you've been doing in this area and how Schroder's is bringing private assets to a wider group of investors? Yes, happy to do so. So basically... Uh, in the past, our private equity business was really pure play institutional uh, from a client orientation point of view. Uh, with Schroders Capital and as part of Schroders, uh, the reach into democratization is pretty obvious from a client reach perspective. And there's also lots of dynamics around different types of products that support the democratization. There's basically three different product types that we're looking into and working on and have already launched products uh, with, which is basically number one, semi-liquid open-ended funds, um, where we have an active uh, fund and a second fund even already launched as well. Then there's the listed closed-ended structures, which is typically the trusts in the UK listed. And then there's also... A third type of structure, which is closed-ended invest uh, products uh, with a held to maturity, so to say, uh, structure, so really illiquid in themselves. And that's the one that I think is the least advanced of the three, uh, but next in a row. And uh, the semi-liquid one, how does that work? So that feels almost like a mutual fund which in our case just has a monthly subscription and a quarterly redemption window. And the semi-liquidity means that the redemption mechanism can be constrained or limited, right? So basically, if everybody wanted to pull out, there's a gate that will close. If you want to get out for your specific personal reasons, not affected by the market uh, turmoil or whatever, and you're your statistical uh, lever in a sense, then uh, the gate will be open for you and you can redeem. Mm. So what's the minimum investment for this um, product? On the semi-liquid side, the minimum ticket size is $50,000. Get the money on day one, on this monthly subscription uh, window, right? And then you're quasi fully invested in a fund that has a life portfolio and, of course, a, a certain cash buffer within the fund. But that's 10 to 20%. Mm. And where is this fund uh, registered? Is it Europe? Um, this is a Luxembourg-based uh, fund. Okay. 
With these types of uh, private equity funds, I mean, when you look at the strategy altogether, what's the breakdown of investors? So how many individual investors are you getting into these strategies? Um, this really goes much into wealth management channels. Uh, there's also some smaller institutional investors that prefer uh, the smaller investment amount as well as the semi-liquidity and the easier process handling of such a structure over a limited partnership with cap commitment and then capital calls and 12-year and, uh, lifetime products. Uh, which is the traditional private equity concept, right? And uh, with the closed-ended fund that you mentioned, do you sell those to wealth management uh, to the wealth management market as well? So the closed-ended trusts, the listed closed-ended, yeah. they are of course uh, trusts that are listed, and people can buy the shares on the open market. Uh, if you refer to the third category, the closed-ended long-term holds. That's a product initiative which is still in the earlier days, um, uh, which we are still only working on and preparing for. Mm. Okay. And that will be um, targeting the wealth management segment as well? Um, yes. Mm. And um, talking about different products in the UK, obviously the long-term asset fund uh, has been launched. Um, do you do you see that as an attractive structure? Do you think that it will create for opportunities for you in private equity as well? So this is one of the structures that falls under my prior, previously mentioned category three, closed-ended held for the long-run investing concept. And uh, we are definitely in the first wave of managers that will use this structure and launch such product. We are currently working on it. it it's applicable to a multitude of, or a wide range of private asset investment types, uh, including private equity. And thus, uh, we see clearly uh, we have some plans on this side as well. Well, in the first instance, they're not opening it up to retail clients yet, right? But do you think that that's going to be the ultimate goal? I mean, that's going to happen soon enough. I think if you touch now on, on regulation, right? Regulation is a difficult walk between protecting end investors and retail investors, especially, versus providing them access. And, and this fine line and balance, the more established the private asset uh, sector or class becomes, the more uh, accessible it should become for all types of investors, especially if the providers of the products are highly regulated anyway, right? Uh, I think if you look at the supply side, there's of, of course a lot of things going on, right? There's the product innovation, and alongside the product innovation, there's always the regulation. There's um, the technology as a third element beyond product innovation and regulation, which has made accessibility uh, in several areas much easier going to the crowdfunding and the online platforms for investment activities. So we understand the needs for regulation, right? But it's also uh, important to provide the access. And that's why I believe 
that uh, larger asset managers that are regulated by themselves and the products that they can rain, uh, launch under, under the, the various regulatory regimes will open up in the midterm uh, to, to a broader client base into the retail market. So do you think that uh, we need some regulatory change or the current laws and rules are fine and the um, kind of private assets industry can still continue to grow into these markets under those rules? Um, the rules will change further, I think. There's still several elements and complexities, right? Uh, it's the, the liquidity requirements uh, versus the illiquid nature underneath, right, um, of some investments, but that would, technically it's not different to a real estate market, right? Not every house sells every day, right? And so there's nothing new to that discrepancy as such. Um, there's also uh, the valuation rhythm. So daily valuation is definitely not the norm in private assets and private equity uh, as of today and probably still far away. And so these, these lower frequency valuation mechanisms, they must be acceptable. And, and so that's definitely two things that uh, still have lots of elements of the regulation that need to link to these two aspects. And on the buyout side, so obviously there's a lot of money right now in the market and there's a concern that returns might come down because of it. Everyone's paying a high price for the businesses they buy. What are your thoughts on that? Um, definitely the, the last five years, not to say the last 10 years, have been extraordinarily good for equity investments in general. That includes private equity, but also public equities. So the long-term returns of public equities have been beaten in the last decade, right? And similarly, private equity has been above the expectations in the last 10 years. What we are very confident about is that the outperformance premium of private equity over public will hold up. So for that to hold up, um, how are you investing? I'm curious. I mean, what kind of things are you paying attention to? Because you can't just buy at a low price and just wait a bit and sell it off, right? You need to do some other things. <laughs> it's a more, more engaged yeah. model, right? And one core element, specifically on the buyout side, is the governance model as such, right? Private equity stands out with a strong alignment of interest between the management of the team of the company, the fund manager who is the majority shareholder, and therefore also the end investors participating alongside the fund manager. And everybody is aligned for the long term, meaning five-year anticipated holding period for the company and the development plan for these five years. So everybody benefits from a successful exit in five years. And that's the alignment from day one. And this alignment and the joint plan derived before the investment uh, makes a big difference to public equities. How about fees? I mean, from a client side of things, fees are always kind of seen as too high in the private markets, right? Do you think that um, the industry will be able to sustain what it's charged so far? 
Um, so basically, the total expense ratio is a sensitive topic in the overall market, right? And, and on all on, and on all asset classes. Um, the individual private equity funds come from the two and twenty fee model that you mentioned, 2% fee on commitment and 20% carried interest performance fee. Um, with the products we've launched, uh, we've already achieved a clear lowering of this total cost by, by reducing the underlying uh, costs of the underlying level and not adding uh, too high fee on our level. So that makes the overall total expense ratios um, more amenable for end investors. And I think uh, the, the, the products have to be um, qualified on their net performance basis, right? And that's, we, that's what will drive the demand and supply match ultimately. Mm. And um, how are you able to reduce the costs? So through co-investment and secondary uh, elements that are lower in the fee than pure primary fund commitments, uh, we could eliminate a meaningful portion of the, the underlying costs. And now I'm finding, um, just talking to asset managers um, generally, that more and more people want to get into private markets. They want to launch products and take advantage of this increase in demand. So how are you finding the competitive landscape? Kind of how are you making yourself stand out among all of these new entrants as well? Uh, it's a very great world we're in. Um, lots of Traditional private equity players are really still on the institutional uh, focus and uh, on limited partnership structures uh, with regards to their product design, right? And uh, thanks to the Schroders platform, we could leapfrog uh, the dynamics in the market here and are among a much smaller number of players who really establish such products. There's a lot of talks, uh, but the real number of meaningfully sized products is not that big yet. And you say meaningfully sized. So how much in capital are you getting to this program? How much do you have in assets now? So over the last three years, we've accumulated uh, $1 billion of uh, democratized private equity cont uh, content for such products. So that means we went from a 100% institutional, 0% uh, retail-oriented uh, to more than 5% uh, of our asset base in the retail market within three years. So a pretty nice initial growth uh, that we see continue as we speak. No, so I believe uh, the democratization and the the capital that is really uh, to flow into private assets from the retail market uh, has a meaningful potential and size, uh, especially as uh, these people come from a zero allocation point of view uh, and therefore um, still a conservative allocation to these private asset categories will be uh, an 
a significant absolute number. I think that's it's the next wave of growth for the private asset industry. And this also includes the uh, defined contribution schemes, right, which almost are part of the retail investor spectrum, despite the fact that they should be a long-term pension concept and uh, were historically more from a pension schemes perspective, a clear institutional bucket. Mm. And I mean, as these uh, kind of investor profiles open up, um, maybe DC pensions get uh, invest more into private equity, private markets. Do you have any concerns of things that might go wrong and how you might mitigate them and make sure that there aren't any problems? I think it's the challenge that applies across the whole asset management industry, right? There's uh, reputed houses that do a lot of things right. Sometimes something can go wrong content-wise. Sometimes uh, some things are uh, not properly established and, and, and managed, and that may have damages. But I think uh, going with the larger regulated players and them doing their best efforts on these democratization efforts will, will provide the same solidity as for the other asset classes. And I guess as people learn more and more about these asset classes, they'll become more confident as well. Because in the wealth management channel, it's still a new area as well, right? That's true. Yes. All right. Great. Well, thank you uh, for taking the time. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Celine. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.